0: Come and should be by two or three at the most, or at the most, three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God, and let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But for revelations made to another who is seated, let first keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. The spirit of the prophets are separate to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask them a husband at home, for it is proper for a woman to speak in the church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak the tongue, but let all things be done properly and in orderly manner. So we've come off of the, the section explaining uh, the relationship between women in the church and men in the church, and, and uh, Paul has to remind the Corinthians that everything doesn't start and stop with them. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only, he reminds them throughout his, this epistle that this is how it's done in all the churches of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God, all the churches of God. Why is it that you do that? You can't with them. And he doesn't actually say it that way. He says it much more eloquently. But um, so clearly the Corinthians thought that they had the corner on truth. They were acting as if they had written Scripture. But Paul admonishes them that the Word of God had come to them. Through the teaching and the ministry of the apostles, no believer anywhere has the right to overrule or ignore God's word. This is apparently what they were doing. Now we're going to we're going be finishing up chapter 14 today, and probably we'll get started in chapter 15, which is actually one of the most wondrous chapters in all of the Bible. It's the most cogent and beautiful explanation and, and uh, characterization of the resurrection, which is... Christianity, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So then he says in verse 37, he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize, or actually he should recognize, it should be obvious to him, that the things which I speak and write to you, the things I write to you, are the Lord's commandment." There's possibly some irony here in that Paul is saying to the Corinthians who considered themselves the most spiritual of all, that if they really were spiritual, they would recognize his words as coming directly from the Lord through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Since he is dealing with prophecy in tongues here, it is likely the word "spiritual" is at least indirectly referring to speaking in tongues. If one of them claimed to be a prophet or have the gift of tongues or any other gift, they would recognize that the things that he has been teaching come directly from God Himself. Those who are spiritual will submit themselves to the teachings Paul has brought. Here. And that carries over to today. If you're spiritual, if you think yourself spiritual, you will submit to the Lord God. Because that is our authority. That is what God has given us to direct us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, day in, day out, how we can live according to a manner that please God. And that will bring glory to Him, which is far more important. So if you, if you think you're a prophet, you think you're spiritual, then you would know that what I am saying, he said, comes directly from the Lord. the Lord's command. And again, that needs to carry over to today. We need to recognize that what, what is in the Scripture, the finished, final, sufficient Scripture, is the Lord's command through the apostles, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Old Testament prophets. Is what we need. Is what we have. If they chose, if they chose not to follow these prescriptions and proscriptions, they were to be sanctioned and kept quiet. This was was apostolic authority at its best, and it is good that God ordained it because the early churches especially needed to conform to the clear teaching of the Word of God. And I say that in a manner that it's sometimes at the beginning of something, it's so important that you get it right at the beginning. What if you built the foundation of the house wrong? Everything you do from then on is going to be screwed up. The walls are going to be crooked. Things are going to sink we actually, Kim and I, the first house we lived in had, in, in the wintertime, had a, uh, um, a sunken living room. And it wasn't because it was designed that way. It was because it was a house that was built right on the ground. There was no foundation, we found out later. And uh, so in the wintertime, the kitchen heaved about four inches. It was great. Then, you know, you go, okay, you've got to remember to step up into the kitchen in December. If the foundations be removed, where shall the righteous go? And in this particular case, Paul is saying um, that you... What I'm saying, I guess, is that they had to get it right. We still need to get it right today. We still need to get it right today. So if they chose to follow... Not to follow these, they were to be kept quiet. So it should also be noted that this particular verse does have a textual difficulty in translation. Literally, it reads... This is how it literally reads. If any man be ignorant let him be ignorant. Most commentators have come to the conclusion that it is a wordsmith's way of saying what we have in the translation in the the New American Standard, among others. If someone ignores my teaching, he will be and should be ignored. If anyone be ignorant, let him be ignored. Let him be the the result of of ignorance. The general sense is very clear, though. Whoever ignores Paul's teaching puts themselves in peril of violating God's word. And I, I can't, I had never seen this before. Do you know that there's entire groups of people that think you just followed, that, that read the whole Bible, but they think that Jesus' words are authoritative? Am I not coming through? You can hear me. Okay. They think that Jesus' words are authoritative, but not Paul's. There's a verse in Timothy that goes something like this. Most scripture is pretty good for you. If you pick and choose the stuff that's best, you'll get through this life without too much egg on your face. I think that's what it says. That's what, that's what you would think the world has decided, or even the Christian church. It says all scripture is profitable, is, is, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that the man of God may be fully equipped... To do the work of God. I I just blew the last sentence there. I don't remember exactly what it is. But the point is, Jesus himself ordained the apostles. He gave them the authority to write these things so that we would have them for our our, our, uh, sanctification today. All scripture. All scripture. All scripture. Anybody raise their hand if they don't know what the word all means? Very good. Very good. So Paul says, if you don't recognize my teachings as authority, as authoritative, and as direct commandments of the Lord, then you're to be ignored. So those people who don't recognize Paul's teachings today, we need to ignore them. Now, we need to, we need to re, re, uh, give a response so that the church at large can be taught correctly. But as far as giving them any place or position, they need to be ignored. All scripture. Any questions about these two verses, 37 and 38, or comments or concerns? Verse 39. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. In summary, Paul again encourages the Corinthians to hold prophecy in higher esteem than tongues, but he does not want anyone to be forbidden from speaking in tongues as long as they follow his rules of engagement, if you will, his rules of order in the preceding verses that he gave us. Both prophecy and tongue speaking need to be done the right way, and he has given that way. The earnest desire is to be for prophecy, because that is teaching, explanation, and exhortation, exhortation. teaching, explanation, and exhortation. Prophecy exhorts us, it comforts us. When you read a lot of the scripture, are you not comforted by the fact that God is in complete control? Nothing escapes him. No sweat ever graced the upper lip of the God of the universe. He's never had a situation where he went, what did Razor do now? How am I going to fix that? I thought he might have a few of those, but he's never had that. Nothing escapes him. Nothing is beyond him. And so Paul says desire prophecy. That is the teaching, the explanation, and exhorting believers. But tongues are not to be forbidden nor ridiculed. Although tongues was a limited gift in use and in duration, it was given to certain Christians by God's design and was therefore necessary for the time in that it was used in order to authenticate his message in the hearer's ears from the lips of those who would speak in tongues and provide the message of God's word in a language that they maybe themselves did not even know, or most likely they did not even know. That's what tongues was about. Um, Again, remember that situation at Acts where we had 3,000 or more people in an audience Many of them who didn't speak Aramaic or the local language. And when the apostles, Peter and the apostles, proclaimed the gospel that morning, it says that they heard it in their own language and they turned to each other. How can this be? This authenticated the message of the apostles. And then he finishes the chapter this way, and this is just a, a remarkable and, and a, an effective way of finishing it. But all things must be done properly. And in an orderly manner. Properly means decently, becomingly. It comes from an idea which is having good form. Um, Not haphazardly, not stupidly, um, but careful. It's determined by the context, it says. And then also in an orderly manner. The word orderly, if you go the right way, I'm doing things not in an orderly manner here. Here we go. Properly. Now we'll get to orderly. In an, ar- in an arranging or an arrangement, a fixed succession observing a fixed time, do or write order, orderly condition, the post or rank or position which one holds in civic or other affairs. It's an amazing thing to see how words develop and how they can come to mean certain things. Taxis is where we get the word taxonomy. And today, what, what uh, that word connotes in our minds would be the, the tree of life. And I'm using their terms, but so there's bacteria, there's there's other uh, there's there's three kinds of bacteria, and then we have the succession of life taxonomy, and this is what uh, um, physical scientists use to describe animals. You've heard Canis lupus, which is a wolf, and it's of the the genus Canidae, etc. The family Canidae, genus Canis, uh, species Canis lupus, dog. Oh yeah, Canis lupus isn't dog, isn't wolf. I'm not a taxonomist, by the way. So this is taxonomy. This is where we get the word. And it's a remarkable thing to see how words develop. I I was thinking about this, how to communicate it. Sometimes words will start out with a positive meaning. And then in the culture, they'll end up with a different kind of meaning. Let me give you an example in English. When I say, Jess creates cabinets with a craft that is unbeatable. What do you think when I use the word craft? Craft. What, what does that connote? What does that mean to you? Trade? Making something? Or his craft at building cabinets is, un- is unbeatable. So doesn't the word craft kind of connote excellence and ability and stuff like that? Now, if I said, Jess, when he makes cabinets, is crafty. He's going to cheat you when he sells you. You know, Jess would never do that. He'd die first, but So, it's interesting how words can move along and have different meanings. And so, this word, which came to mean, it's an ancient military term um, which describes an ordered troop. It was used of military arrangements and, and talks about in descending rank. And I learned when I was, one of the things I learned so that I wouldn't embarrass myself in front of veterans was how to properly name the generals. It's be my little girl. Brigadier general, major general, lieutenant general, general. Be my little girl. That's a taxis. That's an arrangement. And so, so God created things in an orderly, progressive, prog- and I'm using the word progressive properly here, progressive manner. There's no, there's no such thing as evolution, but everything has an order and a, an observable hierarchy. And it's wonderful that it is so. And our job, as in, at least in the, the work of scientists, is to discover that order that God has created. So Paul closes out this chapter with a general reminder, a firm but a final general reminder of what he has been saying in the specifics. And he, he says, do everything orderly. The public worship services of the church should indeed include teaching and all that goes on with it. All of those things must be done properly and in order. That is according to the multitude of scripture directions that, are given, that have been given, and each in its turn That it is in an orderly manner. It needs to be done properly and in an orderly manner. The word for properly gives the idea of gracefully, harmoniously, or beautifully. The word translated orderly includes the idea of line upon line or each in turn. And that's one of the reasons why in churches such as this, we teach exegetically, expositionally, and we do it in books. We don't pick and choose. You can. You can properly teach exegetically and expositionally on a subject. But it's far more effective to start at the beginning of a book... And work from verse 1 to verse whatever, the last verse in the the last chapter, in an orderly, proper manner, beautifully done, hopefully beautifully done. (laughs) So the word, it it connotes line upon line, each in its turn. From that, we, we get the word taxonomy. Each plant, bacteria, and animal is organized descriptively in the taxonomy of life so that it can be traced back to a common denominator, and, and to some degree, that is, is an excellent way of dealing with it. Although this taxonomy has its basis in evolution, it does have its uses, and for our purposes, it shows what Paul was getting at. Everything needs to be done, proceed in an orderly and effective, beautiful manner. God is a God of order, and he is a God of design within nature, within astronomy, and even more importantly, within the church coming off the great chapter about love, Paul set the stage for chapter 14. So the first 12 chapters were a litany of some of the difficulties that the Corinthians were exhibiting and how to correct them. Then he punctuates it with the great chapter on love and how everything that the Christian needs to do in life needs to be hung on what we call the infrastructure of love. It has to be done in love. You need to you need to take care of people in love. You need to see to their needs in love. You need to um, confront, if necessary, in love. Everything must be done in love. So the Corinthians had been misusing one of the most important sign gifts of the time, and it was there to authenticate the message of the apostles. Paul continually, throughout this entire chapter, chapter fourteen, lists prophecy—that is, foretelling—as we have discovered, as we have discussed, above the gift of tongues he continually reminds the Corinthians of their need to evaluate what they're doing based upon how it serves the needs of the body of Christ. If it is done to lift oneself up, it is done wrong. Not only the purity and message of the early church was at stake here, but the very usefulness of each and every believer as well. And thus today. If they were going to aspire to something, Paul wanted them to aspire to prophecy. But all the gifts were necessary, even even uh, time, the, the time, the uh, the sign gifts, even the sign gifts, the, which would pass away, which were used at the time to prove to the world that the apostles' message was true and accurate, and then they passed away. Paul closes the chapter with the, the reference to his apostleship in that any truly spiritual people would understand what he was writing to them, which was the Lord's commandment. His final injunction in this chapter is a call to beauty and orderness, orderliness, something we can all aspire to. So are there any questions about chapter 14? We finished it up. We made it. Now, let's, uh, chapter 15 is a long chapter. So we're not going to read the whole thing. But I would like to read the first 19 verses before we get started. Am I coming through it all? I'm not. Am I going to have to preach this over in my office? (laughs) Oh, I know you can hear me. This is my call on the cows invoice. Verse chapter fifteen, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, the first nineteen verses. Now Paul says, "Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures." And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only... We are of all men most to be pitied. Lee Strobel said this. He said, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead, Timothy Keller. We have often asserted, and we affirm it yet again, that, in, that no fact in history is better attested than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It must not be denied by any who are willing to pay the slightest respect to the testimony of their fellow men that Jesus, who died upon the cross and was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, did literally rise again from the dead, Charles Spurgeon. And last, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So now we have come to what is recognized as probably the most beautiful and wonderful treatise on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the scriptures. If Christ is raised from the dead, then all is well for believers. Well, all is well, period. If he is not, move along. Let's move along. There's nothing to see here. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians works its way logically from proofs of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to the proofs that Paul gives us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that because he has risen, so we shall rise as well. This is what the Corinthians were apparently denying in some measure. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Obviously, in the Corinthian church, there was a false teaching going around, That Christ, that there was no resurrection from the dead. They weren't saying Christ didn't rise from the dead. They were saying there was no resurrection from the dead. (laughs) Upon the resurrection hangs all of Christianity. If Christ has not been raised, then death has not been swallowed up in victory, and it still stings permanently. Upon building the case for the resurrection of Christ in the first 11 verses, Paul then proceeds to demolish the idea that believers are not raised. He then embarks on a short defense of his apostleship again, and then he discusses just what kind of body believers will have when they are resurrected, in fact. He finishes out the chapter with a reference to the rapture and how our immortal bodies will be part of our final glory. He then encourages the Corinthians, the believing Corinthians, who are living out their salvation, not to let death bother them and to remember that their work for the Lord was not in vain. So we'll talk about, as we go through this, some of the reasons why those in the church. There could have been Sanhedrin there who did not believe in the resurrection. They came out of their teachings of the Sanhedrin and they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the body. And we'll see. That I have quite bit I think I have some information in here about their teachings. And so we're talking to a group of pagans and possible Jews who both might have had in their past no allowance for the resurrection of the body. And so sometimes. Does it not take a while for the truth of God's word to dislodge false information from our minds, false ideas? We hang on to the things we think we know because we know them. And don't bother me with facts. This is what I've always believed. This is the way we've always done it. And so often throughout our lives, we will find God's word beginning to break and dislodge the things in our hearts and in our minds that are just not true because all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction. So we need to look at the doctrine. We need to allow ourselves to be reproved. We need to be willing to be corrected. And then we need to be instructed in the right way. And it's all here. We don't have to go anywhere else. We don't get our, our doctrine from here, and our correct, reproof from here, and our correction from here, and our instruction from here. We get all four from the sufficient, finished Word of God. And so Paul is going to work through this false theology that is going through the church at Corinth that is leaving people discouraged. If you thought you weren't going to rise again, wouldn't, wouldn't that kind of sweep the legs right out of a lot of what you have hope in? There's, there's those who have gone before, they're not there. They didn't get resurrected from the dead. I'm not going to be resurrected from the dead. It's an amazing thing to me how we can hold these te- teachings like that in the light of other scripture especially. But not so much. uh, But so much that that is true. So much of that is true. But we're going to have a proper, beautiful, um, carefully constructed message throughout this section of Scripture, this chapter, that will put that false idea to rest and will give us the truth. So now Paul says this. He starts out this way. He says, "Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand." What's he calling the Corinthians? What's his beloved name for them there? Brethren. So who's he speaking to, believers or unbelievers? It's okay. Believers. He's talking to believers. Do we know any believers? Now, of course, we know everything, and our faith is settled and we're perfect. But do you, anybody in here, know somebody that believes a few things that are not quite right? But they're believers, and we need to treat them as such. And Paul says, brethren, I make known to you. The gospel. In this this chapter has several focal points, one of which is verse 12, where Paul pointedly calls out those who say there is no resurrection of the body. Apparently there were some in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, who had been influenced by or who or who were Sadducees. This is one common belief of commentators. Another is that there were Stoics or Epicureans among them who put who brought with them some of their pagan ideas. They believed the body was evil and after death it passed away and all that was left was the mind which was not evil. <laughs> I think the most evil part of us is our mind. Boy, when we get stuff wrong, we really do a good job of getting it wrong. We get it backwards. They had it backwards. So, (laughs) now, of course, biblical Christianity teaches that all are born depraved. The sweetest, cutest little baby on the planet, the delight of mom and dad and the grandparents, is a depraved individual who, if he had the strength of an adult, would tear your head off to get at his food. That's what he is. Don't let that influence, don't don't go home and start smacking your kid just because he's depraved. But, But the point is we're all born depraved and must undergo regeneration and salvation by the sovereign act of God, the sovereign individual act of God in order to be prepared for heaven. Greeks believed that the body would dissolve and the mind for the spirit would go back to the gods who sent it. The mind and the spirit would go back to the gods who sent it. Some of, this would have been some of the contamination brought into the into the Corinthian church by the infected people who were there. All of us are infected by false teaching today. I'd love to think we all were, are there. Paul said, I'm not there. I, I, I press forward to the high calling of Lord Jesus Christ, leaving behind those things that I have had to strip away as but refuse. And all of us live that kind of life. We move from grace to grace, sanctification to sanctification. Well, the Corinthians, at this point, were imbibing an improper doctrine about the resurrection. So, clearly Paul is bringing this argument to believers because he calls them brethren. He points out that they had preached, the pure, he and the other apostles had preached the unadulterated gospel to them years ago, and they had received it, and they were even now standing in it. Yes, it is possible to stand in most of the truth of the gospel with some error attending our thinking. This is what the Corinthians were struggling with. Some among them were teaching that there was no resurrection of the body. Paul begins to develop his argument to show how false how false, and how dangerous and how uncomforting that concept is. So in verse 2, he says, now he said in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It is the gospel, it is God through the gospel that saved the Corinthians. The God of the gospel had chosen, regenerated, and saved liars, thieves, homosexuals, adulterers, con men, prostitutes, burglars, murderers, committers of incest, and many other other sins. And he still does that today. The fact is that Paul calls them brethren, though. The fact that they were still an ongoing church testified to the power of the gospel. There were some there who had not had saving faith, though. They had believed in vain. Some heard but did not completely understand or believe what they had heard, and they walked away. They, some people, sometimes people walk away in their minds, and they're still sitting in the pews, but often they walk away physically. They walk away, and John talks about that. Some heard but did not completely understand what they thought they were believing, and so walked away. Some had no depth of soil, and although it appeared they believed at first, when difficulties came, they withered away. Parable of the sower. others appeared to believe but then were dissuaded by the cares of the world none of that is saving belief none of this was saving belief Paul is addressing the brethren those who had persevered for it is the persevering ones that demonstrate that they are saved it is not the persevering that saves them but the persevering is an ongoing open demonstration that saving a faith is effective forever and it is effective because it is a faith that God himself has given to the ones believing, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Even that faith is not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It is a gift of God. And those believing brethren Christian are the ones Paul is talking to now. How is it that some of you, he'll say in verse 12, will teach that there is no resurrection from the dead? So any questions about that, verse 1 or 2? Comments? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul delivered to the Corinthians the truth contained in the Old Testament, inspired by God. He did not make this up, and he and we are reminded by Peter that these were not craftily contrived tales, but rather the finished, perfect Word of God, as contained in the Old Testament and in the inspiration that the Holy Spirit gave to the apostles and to the Lord. Well, and to the apostles, the Lord Jesus Christ was inspired because He was God in the flesh. Jesus himself, when he spent the afternoon with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, explained that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of him. He opened them up to the scriptures which spoke of him. The multitude of Old Testament passages the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles used were what were primarily used as the instruction of the early church. Couple that with the inspired teachings of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, and we have the complete package according to the scriptures. The phrase, for our sins, by the way, comes directly from Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. We are, our sins fall upon him. These are the things that were being taught to the early church. And Paul says, I deliver to you as a first important, terribly important, incredibly important, most important, what I receive. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And verse 4 and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul continues with the historical record record of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Remember what the folks on Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, where have you been, Jesus? They didn't know it was Jesus, but where have you been? You've been living under a rock? Look what happened. They took the Son of Man, and they put him on a cross, and they killed him, and they put him in a tomb. Haven't you? Aren't you paying attention? Don't you read the right newspapers? Are you getting fake news? This is well, Paul said, Christ was buried, he was raised, according to the scriptures. This as well, was according to the scriptures. And then verse 15, we'll start the appearances and then we'll talk about it if you have any questions. Thus begins one of the most well-attested incidents in history. Subsequent to the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ began his series of appearances, starting with his appearance to Peter, also called Cephas. It is surmised that he appeared to Peter first because he wanted to bring comfort to the one who had abandoned him at his crucifixion. This was a loving and generous thing to do and Peter must have been doubly blessed and horrifiedly humbled. Can you imagine? You, you, you cursed the last time you saw him and said you didn't know him and walked away. And then the first thing he does when he comes back from the dead is he comes to you and, and treats you with kindness. Can you imagine? Your heart would go right to your feet. But what a wonderful thing it was. And what a what a, an impetus it gave to Peter to preach the gospel. Then he appeared to the 12 apostles, which would have been the 11. This was the normal way of referring to the apostles in the early church. This appearing was not a vision. And, not, and the word translated appeared is from the Greek horao, which means in the passive, a physical seeing. They didn't see a holograph. They saw the living Jesus Christ in the flesh. He appeared to Cephas. He was seen by the twelve. There's there's plenty of perfectly good Greek words that refer to visions and such. This is not one of them. They saw him. Any questions about that? Comments? There's so many theories about that that like to mess that mess that theology up. During one of his appearances, Jesus, knowing that future men would question his resurrection, made certain that he proved it was not a spirit but a flesh and bone human body they were witnessing resurrected from the dead. In Luke chapter 24, in Luke chapter 24, I don't know if you can read those, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, He says this in verses 36 through 43, or the scripture says this. While they were telling these things, talking to one another about what they had seen on the road, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They still, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate it before them. Casper never eats. Anybody know who Casper is or am I dating myself? Have you ever seen him eat? I rest my case. Hollywood proved it for us. The point is, spirits don't need to eat. The Lord Jesus Christ showed them by many proofs that he was who he said he was, that he did exactly what he said he would do. Can you imagine the amazement in the apostles? He said these things. This body will be, this temple will be destroyed, but I will raise it up in three days. Because they would be going, oh, that's what he meant. Wow. It would have been amazing to be in that room, to see the, the looks on their faces and the looks on our faces, too. So here's some of the timeline. So we have Mary Magdalene. He appears to Mary Magdalene. Simon Peter. Uh, the 11 disciples. And just kind of showing how many days. Resurrection Sunday, three days. Over the next few weeks. Is that thing just blurry or is it me? It's just too small. Then seven of the disciples at the Sea of Tom at, at the Sea of Tiberias. I thought it said Thomas. And then James. And then all the ones below and then the locations. I apologize for the blurriness. It didn't look blurry on my. It doesn't look blurry on my paper here. You just can't see it. At any rate, that's kind of a timeline through the 40 days pending uh, post-resurrection appearances. And then after that, it says in verse 15, verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remained until now, but some have fallen asleep. So the Lord Jesus then appeared to 500 people at one time. Tradition puts this on Mount Tabor as if to bolster And and as if to bolster the conclusive evidence Paul is presenting and reminding the Corinthians about the resurrected Jesus appeared to people that were still alive. You could go talk to them. Yeah, we saw him. He came to our house. It doesn't detail what those appearances were, but he appeared to many other people. He appeared to 500 at one time. (coughs) These people were alive. They could dispute it. No, I never saw him. What are you talking about? They confirmed it. There was massive confirmation. Um, Some had died, but most were still with the apostles. Still with him is what he's saying there. there, Some have fallen asleep, but some remain until now. Fallen asleep was a common word used to describe the body at at death. Then he appeared to James, verse 7. Then to all the apostles. There were two apostles named James. One was the son of Zebedee, and the other was the son of Alphaeus. It is commonly believed that this was Jesus' half-brother, James, one of the brothers who did not believe him to be the Messiah. James went from being a skeptic to being one of the early leaders of the church and a key person in Jerusalem. What could possibly account for the sudden change of all these men but a genuine encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ? He then appeared to all the apostles at once, the remaining apostles at once. And then Paul says this in verse, in verse 8. And last of all, as to, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It was several years later that Christ appeared to Paul on that road to Damascus. The word translated untimely born originally referred to an abortion, a miscarriage, or a premature birth. In other words, a life unable to sustain itself. Paul's emphasis was that before Christ, was, before Christ, he was useless, after he became useful. It can also refer to the fact that one of the main requirements to be an apostle was to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ after after his resurrection. Paul did not see the Lord while he was alive walking on the earth, but rather saw him after his resurrection, so even though he didn't fit the exact requirement, he fit the Spirit. Actually, he did fit the exact requirement, because he saw the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected. (laughs) Of all ancient events, none are better attested to than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his commentary on Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Charles Hodge said this, After reminding the Corinthians that the doctrine of the resurrection was a primary principle of the gospel, which he had preached to them, and on which their salvation depended, he proceeds to assert and to prove the fact that Christ rose from the dead on the third day. This event had been predicted in the Old Testament. Its actual occurrence is proved by Christ appearing after his resurrection, first to Peter and then to the 12, by his appearing to upward of 500 brethren at one time, most of whom were still alive, by a separate appearance to James then again to all the apostles, and finally by his appearance to Paul himself. There never was a historical event established on surer evidence than that of the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 through 8, this fact therefore was included in the preaching of all the apostles and in the faith of all Christians. Nothing is more well attested, nothing is more important if we give things first important than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon that resurrection hangs everything. If he didn't rise from the dead, then he was just a decent teacher. No. We'll talk about what he must have been. If he wasn't, if he didn't do exactly what he said he did, if he wasn't who exactly what he said he was, then he wasn't a good teacher. He was a liar of the first order. And we shouldn't listen to a word he said. But if he did rise from the dead, if he did authenticate everything that he taught, and he is God in the human flesh and every knee should bow. Every knee will bow. For I am the least of the apostles, Paul said, and not fit to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church of God. We're not going to make it through that verse. I just want to add a few bits of emphasis to this and we'll, we'll, we'll take this emphasis up again later. The resurrection is Christianity. Every other tomb has either the originator of that religion or the bones of that religion or the dust of that religion's originator in it. The tomb of Jesus Christ was empty three days after he was put in it and has stayed empty until today. Upon this, and Paul knew this, this false doctrine that was making its way through the Corinthian church was undermining the teaching of everything that they had taught. It was bringing confusion and doubt. It was stripping the comfort away that the gospel brings. There was nothing good about this doctrine, nothing good about this false teaching. It was, it was impacting that church in a way that we can't imagine. We don't, I don't think anybody, I hope no one struggles here with the idea that the body will be, your body will be resurrected, that the Lord Jesus Christ was res, res, raised from the dead on the third day. This event is of first importance. And so Paul is going to treat it that way throughout this chapter. And we're going to see some remarkable statements, some wonderful encouragement, and some, some difficult remonstrances to the Corinthians that they need to... Again, I think if I was to give a modern three-word explanation or, or if the three most common words Paul would have used in the modern day in the Corinthian church, they would have been, knock it off! Wake up. And so, again, but... And we also, If we laugh and we think, I'd never do that. Every one of us is capable, but for the grace of God, of walking in a direction that is unwholesome and sinful, of believing false doctrine. Every one of us. That's why we... One of the things why we need each other. We need each other as Bereans to check one another. But more than anything, we need to have a, a committed primary understanding in our minds that this is the finished sufficient word of God and I don't need anything else it's all here everything I need to serve him everything I need to know about him has been provided are we thankful for that today it's a remarkable thing I don't really I'm not good at the stuff I don't have what's the synonym for remarkable and awesome and stupendous and magnificent and wonderful and fabulous there's a bigger word out there somewhere and that's the word that describes what he has given us both in the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ himself let's pray thank you Lord that you have given us this perfect word that we can we can see you every day we can listen to you every day in your word we can hear you we don't hear words voices we don't need them that was for a time when you were authenticating things we have now your word, and it is what drives us, it's what motivates us, it's what gives us the strength to move day to day by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and his grace, might we be all that you want us to be, moving from grace to grace, sanctification to sanctification, working out our salvation with fear and trembling every day to become the people that you want us to be. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kooteny Church.